Good morning, church. My name is Dave. I am excited to be here with you this morning. Nobody chuckled in the first service, so thank you for that. <coughs> I'm the director for equipping and missions here at Summit Limestone, and I am very thankful for the opportunity to be back up here sharing the Word of God with you. Uh, I want to say thank you real quick to all of you who have been praying for me. A lot of you know I have been uh, struggling with some long COVID uh, since Omicron in January, and um, I told somebody that, and they were like, whoa, you have COVID right now? I was like, well, no, 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 long COVID. Like, it's the fallout from COVID. I'm not contagious. I don't actively have it. So had some breathing stuff, had some heart rate stuff, and the doctors were like, whoa, heart's fine, lungs are fine. Um, <clears throat> made it through the first service. I've got my chair here in case I need to sit down. So that, that's what's happening. I'm fine. Um, but I appreciate your prayers. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm paranoid now about saying excited, but I'm really excited. I love the Psalms. Uh, let me pray real quick and we'll get going. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for these people. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for those who have yet to be saved, but who will be saved and thank you that Jesus is coming again. God, we pray that you would move during this time. Fill me with your spirit, I pray. Uh, sustain my lungs that are feeling a little pressure right now, and um, just uh, let your glory shine forth from your word, and stir our hearts to worship you, to trust you, to rejoice in you, to, to even weep rightly with you in prayer, and um, use us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, last Sunday we uh, kicked off a series through uh, the book of Psalms, not through, but from the book of Psalms. We're not going to preach 150 Psalms, uh, but we're going to do a, a sampling. And last week, Bill did an overview of the book of Psalms, an intro for us uh, that was really helpful. The Psalms, uh, as you all know, are such a beautiful and rich part of the Bible that God put in there to fuel our prayers and our worship and our joy um, one of the big things that Bill said we're going to try to do during this season is to read the Psalms in the way that the Bible teaches us to read them. Uh, because there are different ways to read the Bible, and, and in particular, I'm thinking now about the Old Testament. Um, and this little bit of review uh, for those of you who weren't here, but just to catch up uh, from this uh, big idea from last week, uh, if you're looking for a certain kind of thing as you come to the Bible, usually that's going to be the kind of thing that you find in the Bible. Uh, for example, if you're reading the Old Testament and you're expecting and looking first and foremost for role models to imitate, that's usually what you'll find. Uh, you'll see what someone said or what someone did, and you're like, okay, well, let me not do that bad part, but here's a, you know, clearly this is here for me to imitate, and didn't try to copy and paste that character or action onto yourself. So uh, Abraham trusted God, I should trust God, and maybe to have a baby when I'm really old and go to a new land. Uh, or, uh, okay, well, Joseph's a good example. He resisted temptation, uh, so I should resist temptation. I'm encouraged to resist temptation. And, you know, I guess maybe I should take a stab at trying to interpret people's weird dreams. Um, or, you know, Noah got in a boat. Come on, honey, I haven't been out on the water in a while. Uh, I need to take the boat out. Got to obey the Bible. Uh, Okay, and the thing is, in those first two at least, it is, it is certainly not totally wrong at all to read about Abraham's faith and then be inspired to trust God more. It's not wrong to see the, the good character of Joseph and then uh, 
be inspired to resist temptation and fight sin more. The Bible even does that sometimes. Sometimes the New Testament will look at someone from the Old Testament as a good example, uh, but it doesn't do that first and foremost. When you look at the way the New Testament interprets and applies the Old Testament, it doesn't typically draw a straight line from the Old to us, from what the author said or what is recorded that somebody did straight onto our lives. So it's not like copying, excuse me, the original meaning and pasting it directly onto us in the exact same way with the exact same meaning. So because when, when we do that, as we heard last week, we, we can't, when we can't personally relate to what it is that we're reading, uh, then we tend to just skip over that part and look for something easier to plug into our Monday. So we might go to the Psalms and find all this stuff that's foreign and confusing, and by the time we're done with the Psalms, a lot of us who love God's Word and are Christians and are, appreciate the Psalms, uh, we can walk away from the Psalms with only a handful of Psalms or maybe only a handful of verses that really speak to us, that we really know how to pray uh, and really give voice to our hearts to God. But God calls us in the Bible to sing the old songs in a new way. It shows us how to read the Psalms and all of the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. I'm not saying the old was wrong. I'm saying it was pointing forward to Jesus. And now the, the world has changed. The Word of God has a fuller meaning. Uh, it, it's not that God's adding meaning. That was all, always there. And we could look into all of that. Uh, God, God filled it with all of this. The prophets intended a lot of that sometimes. The psalmist intended a lot of that sometimes. But a lot of times it reads like a surface level kind of thing, and we need to see it in light of Jesus to apply it to our lives rightly. So we don't sing the psalms like Old Testament Israelites did under the Mosaic Covenant who were still waiting for the Messiah. We don't sing about the land promise that God gave to Israel as though that applies to us uh, like it's talking about America today or even like it's talking about national Israel today. God hasn't made those covenant promises to America or Israel or Somalia or what. Like he made it to Israel and it was fulfilled in Christ. That's a whole other conversation. Quick plug, something I'm excited about in the fall uh, is we're going to have a, a Monday evening equipping class, a nine-week class on uh, how to understand and apply the Bible. So um, all this kind of stuff we're going to look, Lord willing, cover to cover. I'm excited about it and looking forward to uh, doing that with you. So more on that to come. So God wants us to see what the text said in its original context. It is God's Word. It's true and what it meant in its original context, and then wisely, biblically translate it through the cross into distinctively Christian worship. Like if you just read something in the Old Testament and you copy and paste it into your life and into your voice and it does not get connected to Jesus and the gospel and what he did and what that means for you, then you're singing and applying it in the same way or, or reading and applying it in the same way that an Old Testament Jew would have or a uh, you know, moralistic person who doesn't believe the gospel. And there's lots of ways that both the New Testament and Old Testament show us that the Psalms are about Jesus. We saw that last week. I won't repeat it for the sake of time. But when we say the Old Testament passages, these Psalms are about Jesus, we're not saying that it doesn't apply to us, that it's not relevant to us, uh, as though this is pointing forward to Jesus, and so all you got to do is see it connect to Jesus, and that's where it stops. No, it does connect to us because it connects to Jesus first. 
Because we, by faith, those who have received the gospel, we are united with Jesus and our whole life is in Him. So, in the way that it applies to Him, it has implications for us. Jesus sang the Psalms truthfully. This was His songbook. It, it, these are His words from His heart to God the Father, and that's significant. And Jesus fulfilled these Psalms. They talk about Him or they foreshadow Him. Uh, like, you know, David is very clearly an, an archetype of, of Jesus. So, you know, the Bible and, and scholars will talk about, you know, a type and an anti-type. This is the, the real picture of, of a person or a place or an event that was in the Old Testament, and it really, by God, was designed to correspond to a bigger reality in the New Testament. So the bigger reality is Jesus, smaller, true reality in the Old Testament was David. There's tons of stuff like that in the Bible. So saying he's coming or showing what he's going to be like or other ways that the Bible talks about uh, that Jesus was coming. He, he fulfilled all those things. So we should sing the Psalms like a people who have already received Jesus with everything that that implies. So that's what we're after. All right, so let's get to the text. Um, Psalm 85 is our text this morning. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there with me. If you uh, don't have a Bible and uh, you like to follow along in one, uh, there hopefully should be one under a seat near you that uh, you can take. If you don't have a Bible at home, we invite you to take that as our gift to you and uh, use that. We'll also have the passage on the screen, uh, and you can follow along that way. I said we're getting to the text. We'll actually pause just a little bit more to set this up, and uh, then we'll walk through it together. So like Bill said last week, there are different kinds of psalms. Like you can look at the themes, you can look at the structure, you can look at the, uh, the stuff that's going on in it, uh, and you could try to sort them into different categories. People, you know, come up with, well, there's three big buckets and we can divide them up that way. I've seen people do like, there's 12 very narrow specific kinds of buckets and we can divide it up that way. But what I've noticed is no matter how you try to categorize them into buckets, you're, when you're done, your heaviest bucket will be the Psalms of Lament. Uh, there are more psalms sung to God out of suffering, responding to suffering, talking to God about suffering than any other single uh, type of song in the Bible. These psalms of lament, one reason there's a lot of them is because there's a lot of suffering in the world. And Israel as a nation went through a lot of suffering. And, and, and we get that. All of us suffer. It's been a heavy week in a lot of ways, from our own personal, physical, or emotional suffering to the, the grief of hearing about abuse and cover-up in certain parts of American Christianity, to the evil and tragedy of violence. And what does that mean? How do we respond? God cares about our suffering. It's clear. This is, this is in the Bible so much to show us if, you know, among tons of other things, it matters. It's not overlooked by God. Our tears matter to Him, and we want to know how to trust Him and worship Him rightly through our tears. That's the big point of the Psalms of Lament in the Bible. Lament is the language of brokenhearted faith. And in a world of this broken, with sin and suffering in our lives and all around us, we need to be fluent 
in the language of brokenhearted faith. So we need the Psalms of Lament. Now, some of those are individual laments, like David saying, I am suffering and heartbroken. Please help me, God. Some of them are corporate laments, like all of Israel saying together, God, we are suffering and heartbroken. Please help us. And some of them say explicitly that we acknowledge that 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 suffering was happening as a result of their own sin. Their prayers to God that, that say, God, we are suffering and we are heartbroken and we confess it is all our fault. Please help us. Many of those types of laments are from the time of the exile in Israel's history. So, uh, or they're uh, maybe not necessarily from that time, but they sound enough like it that they were kind of arranged together in, di- in different groups to uh, fit that era. Um, it's a whole other thing. So, back when God made his covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, he'd rescued them from Israel. He says, okay, I've rescued you. I have chosen you. You will be my people. I will be your God. Um, I'm going to give you my laws so that the nations will see my holiness in you, that I'm distinct, that I'm separate from sin. When you're faithful to me and my commandments, I will bless you abundantly, land and prosperity and protection and all these things. And when you repent, I will be merciful to you. Bring a sacrifice. I've made a way. I will forgive. I'm gracious. But if you persist in rebellion and idolatry continually and don't respond to my chastisement, I'm going to judge you. Not rashly, God's not trigger happy to to punish sin, and not not all at once, but God in the law spelled it out ahead of time, one step at a time. If you persist, I'll do this, and if more, I'll do this. God is saying in in the law to Israel, I will keep calling you back to myself in these ways, in this chastisement. I will keep calling you to repentance, and I will keep showing you in this that sin is destructive. The world needs to see. If you're not going to shine my, my glory to the world in uh, the, the way that I've designed through these laws, then I'm going to display my glory to them in showing them that I am uh, separate from sin. Sin is destructive. It has to be responded to so that they will see and fear and be drawn to me. God wants the nations to turn from sin and, and come to God. But eventually, as we know, Israel did reject God so much and so long that they were judged with exile from the land that God had given them. They were conquered by foreign armies, forcibly displaced to other nations, and prevented from going back. And that's where the psalmist is in our text. In Psalm 85, the scripture says, I'll I'll start with the first seven verses. So we're going to hear it in its context let it speak. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. Selah. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. 
This is a Holy Spirit-inspired cry for help. Out of tragedy, out of agony, God himself leads his people to pray, God, we're suffering, we are heartbroken, it is all our fault, please help us. So the context matters. This is what's going on. It helps to start not just what does it sound like if it was in my life, but what does it sound like in their time and in their voice. They're devastated, prisoners of war, lost everything, but even more than that, the biblical narrative, the, the story of God shows Israel knows, these psalmists are writing, understanding this isn't even all about them. They're devastated not only because the exile is a crisis for them, but because it's also a crisis for all of humanity. This, the exile in the Old Testament, these psalms of lament are a huge deal. The mission of God and the fate of the world appear to be at stake in the exile. Because from the very beginning, God had been unveiling this incredible plan for the whole world. He revealed it, uh, more details of it, a piece at a time. He had promised from the beginning to bless the whole world and rule over it through Adam and his family, then later more specifically through Noah, then even more specifically through the family of Abraham, then uh, reestablished, reconfirmed as uh, the family of Abraham grew into the nation of Israel, Mount Sinai, and then even more specifically within that nation through the royal line of David. So in the, in the beginning, God the Bible says God blessed Adam and Eve and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, take, take my image in humanity and fill, it for my fill the earth with my glory and subdue the earth, reign over it, steward it, care, take care of it like, like this garden, make the rest of the earth like this to display my loving rule over you and over all things. You're going to be my representative kings. So God's blessing was supposed to fill all the earth. That was the commission given to Adam and Eve. Bless them, says, go fill the earth with this blessing. Sin and judgment entered the world, and God does it all again. He uses almost all the same language. He blesses Noah and his sons and says, uh, same thing, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. God's uh, blessing was supposed to fill the entire earth through Noah. Later, Abraham, what does the covenant say? In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. What I started in Adam, what I reiterated through Noah, I'm, I'm clarifying now, it's, it's coming through your family. I'm going to give you a, a kid, and there'll be a nation, and there'll be a land for them, and it's going to be this great vessel for the blessing that I intend to go to all people. And then, of course, like I said, uh, the family grew into a nation. God says it again with more clarity, more angles at Mount Sinai, to Israel, you will be a kingdom of priests, again, ruling over the world, showing God's blessing, God's glory. You're going to be a kingdom of priests to bless the world. And then within Israel, David, it's going to happen through you, he specifies. Your sons, who will be kings after you, will rule righteously, and ultimately through them, I'm paraphrasing, the, the blessing of my rule will come to all the earth. You, that kingdom will never end, ultimately pointing to Jesus. But surprisingly, after all that, right after David, the kingdom split in two. There was conflict, there was sin. The kingdom that God set up to bless the whole world all of a sudden is broken in, in two parts, into Israel and Judah. And nearly every king that both of those 
new kingdoms had led them to turn away from God over and over until finally both partial kingdoms were conquered as a judgment from God, their people were taken captive, and even the temple, the physical dwelling place of God on earth was destroyed. So the exile, I mean, they're sitting in the, in the just ashes of this catastrophe, and it looks like this horrible, irreversible, un- unfixable defeat, not just of Israel, but for God. Because the only hope for humanity had to come through a king from the line of David. And there's no king on the throne. There's no throne. There's no temple. There's no country. It looks like God's plan for the cosmos is never going to happen. The blessing of God has failed to come to fruition, it seems like. Sometimes it feels like the whole world is falling apart. But it probably never felt like that more than it did in the exile. So that's the context, that's the song set up, that's where this uh, person leading Israel to sing to God uh, is writing from. How do you sing when the whole world is falling apart? Let's listen to the psalmist. First he says, God, pour out your steadfast mercy on your people. I have slides for these, tried to make them shorter, couldn't do it. If you're taking notes, point one, how to sing in a broken world. Um, pour out, God, your steadfast mercy on your people. We saw this again in the first four verses. He was saying, you were, faithful, you, you were merciful, you were forgiving, you, you did restore in the past. We saw you do that uh, with our forefathers, with Israel in all these different ways and generations before us. And the psalmist is saying, God, we know that that's who you still are. We know your character has not changed. Your love, your faithfulness has not changed. So you were merciful to them. Be merciful to us. Pour out your steadfast, unchanging mercy on your people. Forgive us and bring us back too. Restore us. Next he says, though we bear your judgment, we're in the exile. This is because of it. This is punishment for our sin. This is consequence. Even though we are bearing your judgment, we trust you to save. Though we bear your judgment, we trust you to save. Now, this is, again, how the psalmist is singing in his context. We see this in verses 4 through 9. We read part of this before. It says, Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. There's this Possibility raised, this hypothetical, are you going to be angry forever? All we see in the context, I think this is saying, we know you're not, we trust that you won't, but in the moment is that we're in such destruction that it feels like the end of everything. So he says, will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. And here's the confidence. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. Let them not turn back to folly. God, don't let us go back the old way. Let let us be faithful to you as you restore us. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. Even here in Babylon, his salvation is near to us so that ultimately, as a nation, his glory may dwell in our land. So the psalmist says, even though we're sitting here in exile, under your judgment, we trust that you will forgive, you will save, you'll be faithful. And again, 
not trying to draw a straight line yet. Where, where the psalm, where the text starts. Thirdly, he says, we praise you for the immeasurable kindness you've promised to us. I see a few pins moving. Let me say that again. We praise you. He, in exile, in the ashes, smoke billowing up in the distance. Can't go home. We praise you for the immeasurable kindness you have promised to us. It's coming. We don't see it. It's future. We know you're going to keep your promise. Look at verse 10 and following. He sings. They sing together. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. It's like your goodness is bubbling up from below and and hovering over us to watch over us. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. It's, It's meeting, it's coming to fruition, it's up, it's down. It's like God's goodness toward us is just everywhere we look. He says in verse 13, righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. The psalmist is saying, Here's what we know you're going to do. The future that you have planned for us is beyond our wildest dreams. It's like your goodness is going to be like a spring of water coming up. It's going to be a canopy to protect us all over the place. Your righteousness will even go before you as you yourself walk with us through the land. Sort of this picture of God walking with Adam in the Garden of Eden. So that's how the psalmist sang this song. That was the context. He said, essentially, summarize, he says, you're still faithful and trustworthy, so forgive us, please. Even in this judgment, we trust you to save us as a country. We praise you collectively. We praise you for the incredible kindness that we know you are going to show us because you've promised, and even now we believe you will not fail. So that's the psalm. Some tricky stuff. How do we pray that? Um, some parts translate easy, some parts not so much. But first we've got to ask, what did it look like for Jesus to pray this song and to sing this to God? First off, how can this be a prayer of Jesus if it's a group prayer? It's all this us and we stuff. As Jesus sang this, and this is amazing to me, in, in his earthly life, in the synagogue, reading the Word of God, singing it together, Uh, In truth, as his heart cried to the Lord, he is singing and fulfilling these us and we laments because he is praying on behalf of his people. He's not repenting of sin, but in the incarnation, as he comes to us, he came to be one of us, not becoming sinful, but identifying with us to be our real representative, really human, so he can speak on behalf of humanity legitimately to God. He is praying to God on behalf of all his people. Jesus chose to be identified with us. He is the chief spokesman of God's covenant people back to God. So we get that David was a picture of Jesus, but the Bible shows us also that Israel is a picture of Jesus. We, we see, you know, all these different pictures. The New Testament, love to talk about this, come to the class in the fall, it'll be great. Um, Israel itself, sometimes collectively, Jesus is shown in the New Testament to be uh, the, the new and better Israel. He's a new and better Moses. He's a new and better David, like this great righteous king that's going to guide us and worship God truly. He's the new and better Joshua that leads us into the land of God's promise and defeats our enemies, our spiritual enemies. All these different figures, well, also Israel. 
And I think, without getting too far into that, just one, one observation from that, I believe that Israel's agony in the exile is a foreshadowing of Jesus' agony on the cross. The exile in Israel's history is a picture of the cross. Jesus on the cross, representing his people to God, was exiled from the Father in his death, in the judgment that he bore on the cross. We know that Jesus quoted a psalm of lament as his song to God, his heart cry of agony to God on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of course, you go on through the psalm and you know Jesus is not believing that, that God has utterly abandoned him. He, he, I, he knows he will be faithful, but just like in Psalm 85, it feels like we're cut off totally. That kind of poetic language is used in other um, psalms of lament that explicitly say, we trust you, we know you're not cutting us off utterly. In his crucifixion, Jesus was fulfilling these psalms. They were cut off from the land. Jesus was cut off from God's presence. They were judged for their sin. Jesus was judged for our sin. And in his heart, he was praying the substance, the essence of these psalms to God. So he prays, so our three points from the psalmist, Jesus, as he is fulfilling this in his life and in his death, he's praying, God, pour out your steadfast mercy on your people through me. God, let your, as you've had mercy in the past to former generations, you and I planned that this would happen, but always because it was going to be purchased and paid for by my sacrifice on the cross. I'm here now. I'm accomplishing it. God, carry that work on into the future. Bless your covenant people forever. Let your mercy fall on your sinful people. Let you be vindicated for forgiving and overlooking sin in the past. That's not just to let the sinners go free. I'm showing that you're just by punishing their sin in me. So God, paying the price, continue to extend your mercy to others. Be merciful to them through my death as you have been in the past. Next he says, uh, in the text he prays, even though I am bearing your judgment, I trust you to save. They prayed, though we're bearing your judgment in the exile, your judgment for our sin, we trust you to save. And Jesus is saying, I'm right now really bearing your judgment on the cross, your judgment for their sin. And I trust, I know, even though this feels excruciating and the wrath is so horrible and this is a, a fate that no one else could, could imagine. Part of me feels totally abandoned, but I am confident in your goodness. I am confident in your love, in your faithfulness, that I am not abandoned and that this is for their salvation. This was always the plan. This is why I came. And even though I am being judged for their sin right now, I trust you to bring salvation to them. I trust you to save me from death through the resurrection in three days. I trust you to save me in that sense from the curse. And I trust you to save them by forgiving them, giving them eternal life and a future resurrection. Thirdly, in the psalm, the psalmist prayed, we, we praise you for the immeasurable kindness that you have promised us. It's in the future. It's a promise. We praise you for it. It's going to be amazing. Jesus, I believe, in his heart, uh, life, and in his death was praying, God, I, I praise you. I, I bring praise on behalf of all your people as your, their representative. We praise you for the immeasurable kindness that you have promised to us through me through this cross. Look at verses 10 through 13. This, this blows my mind. Verse 10, 
Again, looking back at this poetic way of imaging the future glorious kingdom of God. He says, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. They've come together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. I think that's a picture of the crucifixion of Jesus. God's righteousness, which punishes sin, upholds justice, and God's love of showing peace to his people. On paper, they're at odds with each other. In the cross of Jesus, they have come together, not as a contradiction to be resolved, but as friends. God's righteousness is good news toward us. His peace is extended to us. That comes together in the cross of Jesus. I believe Jesus, in in essence, was praying uh, where, where the psalm is fulfilled in him. He's in the cross saying, Father, your righteousness to punish sin, your peace that you graciously give your people are now meeting in my death. You're punishing their sin in me, and I am purchasing your peace for them, and I will share it with them forever in my resurrection and theirs. So, not just his death, but we see a picture of his resurrection in verse 11. He goes on and says, faithfulness springs up from the ground. This is a picture, I think, of of Jesus coming out of the tomb. He went into the ground. The New Testament talks about it poetically as into the lower parts of the earth. Well, Jesus comes out of the ground. No more curse, no more death for him. He's finished dealing with sin, so he's finished dealing with death. He's alive again. And then it says, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Are you kidding me? The Bible is amazing. This looks like the ascension of Jesus. He has ascended back to the right hand of the Father and ruling and reigning as God's anointed king over his people and ultimately over his whole creation. Jesus is fulfilling this whole psalm. The psalmist goes on, yes, the Lord will give what is good. What happened after Jesus ascended to heaven? He gave the Holy Spirit who sealed to us all the spiritual blessings of salvation, forgiveness, adoption, reconciliation, perseverance, so many things, eternal life, the future glory. The Lord will give what is good. Jesus gives what is good. And the psalm says, and our land will yield its increase. You follow the the train of logic? I think it's a, a poetic picture of the kingdom of God spreading. Our land will yield its increase. We're not looking for a a bountiful harvest of wheat in Athens, Alabama as as an expression of God's faithfulness. What's our land? The meek shall inherit the earth. The whole earth will yield a harvest of increase, a harvest of redeemed people from every nation. Jesus died for people. He purchased a people for God. He's pouring out salvation for people. He goes to heaven, rules over the earth. What happens? The gospel goes forth and a harvest of redeemed people from every nation are coming forth. And finally, righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. The kingdom of God will advance throughout the world. It cannot be stopped. And Jesus himself has made a way, has prepared a way. In righteousness, he will return and bring all things to their proper conclusion, to the, not just conclusion, but new beginning. He will Do away with sin and evil in the world, and there will be a new world where God himself, Jesus himself, walks among us. Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise of God. So we pray the Psalms through Jesus. If this was ultimately pointing to Jesus, then then that is the reality through which we need to see how it applies to us. 
So when we come to Psalm 85 and try to sing it, we start as, you know, they're crying out, God, if you were merciful before, be merciful to us, restore us, rescue us. We don't have to start with, please rescue us, because we read it through Jesus. We actually, ironically, this happens a lot with uh, the New Testament looking at the old, uh, things are transformed gloriously in Jesus. So we can read this psalm of lament and respond rightly, biblically, by the Spirit with first not weeping, but rejoicing. We start by saying, not please rescue us from this judgment that we're under, but thank you that you've rescued us from our judgment in Jesus. We praise you, God, for having shown us mercy. As you did in the past, you've poured it out in Jesus, and we're secure in it. So things have changed from the time this was written. It was true. It's still true. It's just true in a different way for us in Christ. Looking at the second part, we say, God, we praise you that you gave us salvation through Jesus who was judged on our behalf. Israel was sitting under judgment and yet trusting God for a future salvation. We're saying, Jesus, now in the past, isn't it amazing? that we live on this side of the cross. God, we praise you that you gave us salvation through Jesus who was judged in our place. And even though we suffer in this world, we trust you in it and we rejoice because we know that our suffering is not this exile-like punishment for our sins, Your judgment is never on us. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but the the suffering that we go through, so it can't destroy us. It can't condemn us. It actually prepares us to meet you. It helps us fall out of love with the world and long for home, long for you to come and make everything right. And these light and momentary afflictions are working for us an eternal weight of glory. Your sadness won't just stop. God will transform every bit of it into glory. Do you understand? Like the the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, His rule over all things, His coming kingdom, He's going to take every bit of suffering that you have experienced and transform it into glory that you will enjoy in His presence forever. Your eternal joy in Him will be fuller and richer than it would have been otherwise because of all the suffering you endure in this life through faith in Jesus. You, you can't make up a religion better than this. Like, unbelievable. How do we pray it? We, not just please rescue us, but thank you. Not just... Uh, We're us sitting under judgment, but trusting you, but Jesus was judged and saved us, and we thank you, but thirdly, we praise you for the immeasurable kindness that you have promised us in Jesus. So even as we suffer and weep over tragedies, real pain over real realities that are hard, God, we're saying we we long to be with you. Your, Your immeasurable kindness is going to be poured out on us in the age to come, Ephesians says. We rest even in this weeping, even in this brokenness, even in our sadness that we sometimes are just feel like we're being crushed under. God, we rest in the certainty that you will bring us safely into the incredible future that you have prepared for us in the new earth. The new earth is awesome, but what's most awesome is that you're going to be there and we get to enjoy you forever. So yes, we lament in this world, 
But we lament knowing that we are secure in God's hand. We lament as those having received our Messiah who's transformed all of this for our good. We are secure in God's hand because Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ is coming again. We're going to be made new. Suffering will end. Death will be no more. Corruption and cover-ups and violence are going to stop and never be seen again for eternity. It's going to be incredible, and God wants you to get in on that. He wants you to repent and trust in Him. He loves you. Look what He's holding out to you. He's offering you Himself. There's nothing better than that. He makes every suffering in this world worth it, even if it gets immeasurably worse for us because of following Jesus. It's so worth it. So yes, we pray for help. We pray the Psalms of Lament, asking God to help us, but not necessarily expecting material blessings on our land like Old Testament Israel as part of their covenant, but we pray for the land of God's kingdom to advance, God's visible rule and reign through His church to be promoted, to advance from our neighborhoods to the nations, and we pray for the fullness of His kingdom to come as He returns. And then as we work out the implications of that, lastly, very simply, we comfort other sufferers. God, in my lament, I cried out to you, look what you've done for us in Jesus, I rejoice. I'm still sad, you're gonna help me, it's gonna be worth it. God, help me come alongside other sufferers and weep with them and identify with their tears like Jesus wept and was exiled and suffered in identification with us on the cross. And God, help us to seek out the lost to be rescued by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus so that they could join his family and be in his eternal kingdom with us forever. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for your glory that is just layered and layered in richness in your word that you've unfolded from creation to the new creation through Jesus Christ. It's all about him. We praise him. We thank you for him. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love, for your life, for your death, for your resurrection, for your rule and your reign, for your help by your Holy Spirit, for every blessing of salvation you've given us, every moment that you will carry us through our tears. And the day that we pray will come soon when all things will be made new and we'll be with you. Oh God, come quickly. God, receive our worship. Transform our hearts. Help us to lament as those who have hope and see your word as glorious in light of Jesus. Use us for your kingdom in this world, we pray in his name. Amen. Well, every week we get to respond to the Word of God by commemorating the cross of Jesus, the, the hinge of all history. On the way in, there were some tables. Feel free to step back there if you need. There's a little cup of bread that represents the body of Christ, as he said in the Gospels, and a cup of juice, which represents his blood poured out for us. And we're saying as we take this, God, I, 
Just like my body needs food for life, my soul needs Jesus. And I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and I still come to you. I still trust in you. You still give me life. In your flesh, you paid the price for our sins. In the blood of the new covenant, you have reconciled us to God such that we will never be cast out. There is no more exile ever for God's people. So this is a feast of celebration and a picture of the kingdom to come. The Bible says in the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and having blessed it, he gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's proclaim his death with the cup together. Amen. Well, no irony intended. I am very excited about this next song. It's a, a psalm of lament that is sung uh, through the lens of the cross, and it is uh, beautiful. I'm excited to sing it with you. Let's stand and praise God together. <laughs> 